In the hunter-gatherer society, there was rarely any king. It was most often very democratic and socialist. The tribe was loyal to each other. But the tribe was at most 150 to 250 people. Around the number limit where the brain can view that many people as fellow trustworthy humans and remain altruistic. It's the limit oxytocin can have and still be useful. Oxytocin creates altruism in the in-group, yet distrust and xenophobia in the out-group. It is one of the reasons cited as to the problems with Neanderthals that may have led to their replacement by Homo sapiens. We suspect that other than in perhaps Gibraltar, Homo Neanderthalus only lived in groups of between 20 to 50 and had even more difficulty seeing as many people as one of their own. The leader, just like in much of the primate kingdom, had to prove themselves continuously and play politics to keep their tribe happy or lose power. The members of the tribe had constant methods of letting the leader or someone who could get an ego know they weren't irreplaceable. Shaming a person in power or a gift giver instead of thankfulness is still very common in tribal societies as a way to knock people down a peg and kill their buzz of power addiction that creates tyranny. As we got bigger in population though, post-agriculture, all these mechanisms went out of whack. Many new forms of government arose to keep power from being distributed to the people. God kings, autocrats, tyrants, brutal dictators, warlords, and yes, democracy in Greece, which was limited to certain people, and the Roman Republic, which had a combo of autocracy and democracy without a king, until the decline of the Roman Republic. Some ruled through violence and terror like the Assyrians, while some ruled pretty hands-off through simple fealty and tribute in return for protection like the Persians and Mongolian empires, but all of them fell. By the Middle Ages, God-appointed kings were back in fashion, at least in Europe and Asia, with the aristocracy having various levels of power and serfdom having few rights, some more than others depending on the region. It wasn't until around the time of the printing press in the mid-1500s that the idea of republicanism began to have a bit of a comeback with the publishing of ancient Greek and Roman texts in a large amount. It took off in fits and starts. The ruling elites were appalled by the idea. Absolutist monarchism was obviously ordained by God and just the natural order of things. Some like the Dutch and the Polish Lithuanians kept their monarchs on a leash similar to modern European monarchism. And several violent revolutions later, Europe and the U.S. began experimenting with republicanism. The U.S. embraced republicanism and ended up not having a king at all. This inspired the French to jump into the revolution game, and it was a bloody and constant revolution, leading to a tyrant that was Napoleon, who wasn't perfect, but showed that real meritocracy from the common man could be just as good if not better than a king in terms of absolutist power, which made the rest of the monarchy slam and smear it. The British Civil War had the same impact, and Cromwell tried to be dictator for life of the New Republic, and enough people hated him that the monarchy came back. The violence of the French and English revolutions were used to show why republicanism was awful and a complete disaster. Without a king at the helm, there was no stability. There was constant backlash, and it was a very uphill battle. From 1550 to now, where republicanism and anti-monarchism is now the common and pretty much no nations are actually run by a birthright-based king. When you really think about it, it took from the mid-1500s to now to have republicanism normalized, eliminating the monarchy, and there were some serious setbacks, propaganda against it, and violent bumps along the way to the point that now only a handful of nations have an absolutist monarchy. In the mid-1600s, philosophers began making the case that people could pick their own leaders and do it pretty well and that we didn't need draconian laws to keep our evil natures at bay. 
it took from around the early 1600s for the ideas of democracy to form, also with some serious setbacks, propaganda against it, and violent bumps along the way, though more people in the world do not live in some form of democracy than those who do. China has no democracy and has the biggest population and is using the Hong Kong protest, chaos, and the election of Donald Trump to propagandize why democracy is terrible. Oddly, democracy is growing and exploding in most of Africa, a continent that's been under the boot of autocracy, monarchs, and one-sided capitalism. They are very sold on the idea of democracy, and as their population grows, we may see the argument for democracy for all becoming normal because of them. That said, the majority of the nations of the earth had heavily powered kings 100 years ago, so it may take us another 100 years to reach global universal suffrage, just like we have a majority republic, or at least a strong constitutional monarchy today. Socialism could be viewed the exact same way. It was codified in 1849, and like Napoleon and Cromwell with its violent totalitarian nature, the USSR and China are also pointed to as being examples of what horrible things happen if you abandon absolutist monarchy, or in this case, capitalism. It is still never fully taken when combined with democracy. Democracy is hard to come by. Socialism is hard to come by as people in power hate both. Getting them together is even harder to come by, which is why communist Chile was toppled by the U.S. and replaced by the fascist Pinochet, and we have never seen a democratic, non-authoritarian communist nation. So if we go by republicanism's timeline, we'll have a planet with full democracy around 2100, which also matches around when women will be fully equal with men on the planet, and full democratic socialism or communism with the post-scarcity era of 23,000. Mind you, with a post-scarcity and climate change era, it may accelerate that, and 2100 will be the point where we have global, democratic, libertarian communism, or anarchism. And by communism, I do mean a post-scarcity era where things are so cheap, as Marx predicted, that it is everyone can give what they can and get what they need, which was not supposed to happen until the post-scarcity era. This is going to be a rough 150 to 300 years if that's what it's going to take. Let's just hope we can avoid the violent and authoritarian parts of modern republics, democracies, and socialist nations again, and that we survive the climate crisis created by capitalism and the lack of a representative government. So thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. I'm sure there was nothing controversial about this, and everyone will happily get along in the comments section, which you can do on the YouTube version of this video, or my Facebook page, After School Democracy. Link in the show notes. Just a reminder that I'm Anubis2814 on YouTube, and I have over 500 videos on different topics that I've made over the past 10 years. Please subscribe, and if your podcast site has the option, give me a like or review. If you think what I have to say informed you, consider supporting my Patreon. I'll be doing this podcast weekly and try to get it out on the same day, so I hope to see you here next week, ready to be filled with new ideas. Take care. A big thank you goes out to Elias Garcia Guevara and Joe Taylor, who sponsor the show at $10 a month at the Wapawet level on Patreon. Please consider donating as well if you can, and thank you all for listening.